the roll and go. Where am I to go, me Johnny? Where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go? Welcome to Where Am I To Go podcast. I am so grateful you have chosen to listen to me and to go on the travels and see the things and go to the museums that we have managed to go through for the last two seasons. I have really enjoyed doing this podcast, and I hope you stick with me. It makes me happy to know that people are enjoying what I do. On another note, I want to make sure that everybody knows that we are on Facebook at Where Am I To Go podcast. We have lots of pictures. We have places that we go that we don't do podcasts on. And we have lots of things to see and think about when you decide you're going to travel or if you're just interested in learning about different places that we go. Also, we have an email account at whereamitogopodcast at gmail.com. And if anybody has any comments, ideas, thoughts, you are more than welcome to email me there, and I will do my best to answer, and we'll see where everything goes this season. I've got some neat things lined up, and I hope everybody is ready to go for a museum tour ride. Today we're at a museum that I have always really enjoyed. It's in Butte, Montana, and Butte, Montana is a pretty cool old place. Uh, From my understanding, it was settled by Irish, or the Irish came here to work in droves in the mine, we are at the World Museum of Mining here. We are with Christopher, and we are going to have a heck of a time. Hello, Christopher. Welcome to Where Am I to Go. <laughs> Hi. How are you doing? Good. How about you? I'm doing all right today. I'm glad you're doing right, yeah. all right today. Yeah. Maybe Some... tomorrow, too. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so Butte is a really cool place um, for a number of reasons. Uh, and you're not wrong about the Irish. Um, we do have a very large Irish population here, uh, but that was just one of the many groups that did come settle in Butte. Um, we had people from 37 different countries around the world come here and work in the mines. Um, most of them did return to their places of origin. They came here, worked, and either went home or moved to other places in the country. Um, and so the Irish did happen to stick around. Uh, and from what I've been told, Butte does have the most people with Irish descent in the United States in like per capita. So even, even really? Boston can't claim that over us. Um, and we do have more Gaelic speakers than even Ireland does. Really? Um, he, that's what I've been told. I, don't quote me on it. Cause no, you've been quoted. I know. I've been <laughs> uh, but no, I, I've been told that that's the case. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if that is true because Gaelic is a dying language. And so... Um, there's not a lot of na- speakers of it to begin with anymore. Um, so given the popularity of Ireland um, amongst people from Butte, it wouldn't be surprising at all that that be the case. Um, we do have a lot of older folks here that love that heritage and exploring that heritage, and that includes the languages itself. Cool. Do you guys have a St. Patty's Day party? <laughs> yeah. So uh, I don't know that we, we, we don't have a river to dye green like Chicago, um, but Butte goes pretty hard for St. Patrick's Day. Uh, in fact, we also have a halfway to St. Patrick's Day celebration here in Butte. So we don't just celebrate St. Patrick's Day. We celebrate the six-month mark on the way to St. Patrick's That's Day. Great. Now, is that when they start sobering up or is that when they start drinking again? 
That's a wonderful question, uh, and I have to say, I don't know that technically they would be sober. They just start drinking again. They're, maybe they, they've had their cup of coffee, but it's probably got some whiskey in it anyways. I've always heard that Butte's the place to be on St. Patty's Day, and I have not had the opportunity or, or have not taken the opportunity to be here, but uh, I hear it's quite the... It, it, the whole town comes out for it. All 30,000 people are on the streets partying hard. It's a, it's a big thing here. Um, it's a very, very heavily celebrated um, tradition in Butte. That's cool. cool. Yeah. Now, I know that a lot of Montanans refer to Butte as, well, they take the E off the end and refer to it as kind of the butt of Montana. I've heard that an awful lot. But, you know, I have always been highly intrigued with Butte. The architecture here, the buildings and that type of stuff are just phenomenal. I mean, they were all built in the late 18... A lot of them were built in the late 1800s. And when you drive up Montana Avenue and see some of the old buildings and the restorations and stuff, this is a beautiful town. I mean, Butte is really a beautiful place. It really is. Despite its reputation. Yeah, well, and we may have a reputation for being a little wild, but Butte was one of the premier cities of Montana um, and of the United States in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Um, and maybe that's why the rest of Montana calls us butt because they're a little jealous of, yeah, that's of what it. Butte had to offer. Um, <laughs> uh, but the architecture that you bring that up, um, I've been told by a guy who's from Dublin, Ireland. Um, he came and did a tour last year. Um, and he told me that he noticed a lot of our architecture in Uptown is very similar with, to what you would find in Dublin. And he thinks, and I think I agree with him, is that in that point in time is when we were getting a lot of those Irish immigrants coming in. And, right. you know, some of our copper kings, William Clark and Marcus Daly, both Irishmen, um, we had quite a few big prominent Irishmen that came to Butte. And so the architecture kind of took on the style that was popular in Ireland at the time. And so he said to me, this feels like I'm walking down the streets of Dublin right now, not a city in America. And this really? is a guy from Ireland who said it. So to me, that says, you know, a lot of the architecture was influenced by that big influx of Irish immigrants coming in and working the mines and being the guys who built and designed all the buildings around here. And one of the things that is important to the city is preserving that history and keeping those buildings intact uh, and honoring that history while also trying to bring them up to speed um, so that we can have more businesses come into Butte, more um, people come visit and see that history. But we don't want to lose it by just tearing buildings down all the time. Um, they do try to make sure we really preserve that architecture. I, I, would, I would say that they're doing a very nice job of that. And like I said, over the many years that I've driven through Butte and, and been around here, I, the mountains around here are beautiful. You've got so much uh, outdoor recreation that, that can happen around here, as well as the town is just such a cool old town. It is, and there's lots and lots of history here. Um, you know, one of the things that Butte has a claim to uh, that no one else can is that we were the first fully electrified city west of the Mississippi. Wow. Um, and that was before New York City. San Francisco and Los Angeles. Really? So all three of those big cities, you know, it took them years to get fully electrified, whereas Butte, even in its heyday when we were 100,000 people, already fully electrified, had electricity. We were working with 
arc lights before Edison even released his incandescent bulbs. We had the arc lights being installed right. in mines here in Butte to work and bring up to speed that electricity. Part of the main reason that happened, the copper was coming from Butte. Right. Okay. And contrary to popular belief, we were into the copper pretty much immediately. Um, and so... The first prospectors showed up in 1864 um, looking for gold. That's most people at that time. You know, those prospectors that were traveling around the country, coming from places like, you know, Virginia City, Nevada, right. um, the gold camps in California, they were looking for that next big hit on the placer mines, um, just the panning for gold and stuff. And they weren't interested in working in those underground. Um, they just, they wanted the quick, easy buck, so to speak. So they showed up in 1864, and a group of them that did show up immediately noticed um, that there were areas where there was gold, but there was also a lot of copper and silver. And so um, they were interested in working that copper from the beginning. However, to work copper mines, you got to go underground. Right. Um, you can't really... I mean, you can... Now we have the big open pit mines where you're technically stripping all that stuff off and mining the surface and just taking everything. But back then, if you wanted to go for copper, you were going to have to process it, and it's going to cost money, um, a lot of money. And so what happened was is these guys saw the value in the minerals that were here, but they didn't have the funds to invest into really going into those. Some guys did try, so we have some gentlemen um, like William Parks and Joseph Ramsdale who would claim the Parrot Load um, in October of 1864 alongside um, the original and Ganyan mines that were also first claimed in that year. Um, they, by 1866, had built a smelter to smelt the copper. Um, they didn't fail. They actually did succeed in smelting the copper um, and shipped it both to Baltimore, Maryland and to Swansea, Wales, two of the major copper production areas at that time. Uh, and they made some good profit off of it, but it wasn't financially viable for them to continue operating the smelter the way that they were. They were using horsepower. Um, so literally they set up an engine working off of horses and oh, it was wow. too inconsistent um, because the horses could walk, but when they took a break, the metal would cool. And so they, it was hindering the process of smelting. And so they did get an electric engine installed or a steam engine installed, but it just wasn't cost effective. And so it wouldn't be until the 1870s when uh, William Clark finished his custom smelter um, that the Colorado and um, Boston smelting company helped him build here in Montana. Um, and that would be the Colorado and Montana smelting company. And his smelter was the one that really started the process of getting into the silver and the copper boom that everyone talks about um, in the 1870s and 80s. Um, but realistically speaking, Butte was into the copper right away. Um, we have wow. some newspaper articles that I've found that talk about the correspondents write to their, their newspapers talking about the futures of the Butte area. And they specifically mention how the copper, the copper veins are going to be more valuable and and really shine even bigger than the gold and silver being found and that wasn't to say that there weren't a lot of gold and silver coming out of the ground here just they knew even back then that copper was going to be the big thing for butte well and i did a uh, podcast at the ely railroad museum where the curator there was telling us about uh, the copper coming out of the ground and he referred to it as a copper revolution 
that they couldn't get enough copper back in those days because they were starting to run the electric lines and they were starting to do all of the the uh, technology stuff that was coming around at the turn of the century and everything needed copper. And so even adding to that, before electricity came out, a good amount of technology was still based on copper um, in the sense that steam engines, all of that stuff, all used brass for right. its parts, and brass is an alloy of copper, so you can't make brass without copper. And even before brass, bronze was also a major industry here in the United States. Um, our, our first official copper rolling mill in the United States was actually opened by Paul Revere. Uh, really? Yes. After, uh, in, in, right at the turn of the century, right, uh, he, he actually rolled his first sheets from that factory in 1801, um, but he was our first copper entrepreneur in the United States, and he basically started his thing to his company to make sheets copper sheets that they used to sheathe the bottom of our ships and our navy okay and his industry his ability to actually become an entrepreneur because the british um they banned exports of their copper sheets to the united states um, the, <laughs> imagine at, yeah, that yeah they, they, they didn't want us to have the same advantages and so the united states was then forced to come up with its own industry to counter that before that we had a big brass industry here but not really a copper industry because the major copper industrial area of that time was swansea wales and cornwall um it was being mined in cornwall taken to swansea and processed and then shipped around the world um and then as the united states was forced to start producing its own copper we started slowly taking over that dominance of the copper industry and by the mid 1800s we were pretty much right on par with England um, and then by the late 1800s we had taken over the cop we were producing the, the US was producing upwards of 40 to 50 percent of the world's copper at that point really um, and a good portion of that was coming from Butte um, so in 1906 specifically Butte produced 20.6 percent of the entire world's copper supply Butte Butte one-fifth wow. of the entire copper supply of the world came from this city. That's amazing. It's incredible. Okay, now, now a, a question I have is Anaconda, another 30 miles down the road, yes. has a great big smokestack still there. Yep. That was your smelter point, is that correct? Towards the, So um, starting in the late 1800s after that was built, um, it became the focal point of our smelting and refining operations. Um, in the 1890s, Four out of Butte's five, Butte's five smelters, so the smelters located in the city, closed. Okay. And we had one smelter that would stay operating until uh, the 1930s. And then after 1930, everything was being processed in Anaconda or up in Great Falls where Anaconda had its other smelters uh, and its other okay. smelting operations. And so part of that came from the company Anaconda, which was founded by Marcus Daly um, back in the 1880s, in 1881. One, I believe, is when he actually put the company into um, existence. And he purchased the Anaconda mine um, to start mining um, silver and copper. He was getting, he had realized the advantages of buying that mine. And he saw, he had inspected other mines around and knew that there was a pretty big copper vein down there. Uh, they Even he didn't anticipate the size of it when they actually found the Anaconda load. It, that's what really blew up the copper boom here. Um, their other copper mines were operating at that time, but it was that Anaconda load that just blew things up. And 
he founded the city of Anaconda in order to process his ores because other than Silver Bow Creek, we didn't have a lot of water here in Butte. Um, we were a pretty dry area, okay. which was another issue they encountered in the early days with the placer mining um, and stuff like that. And so he went over and built it where he knew there was a water source. And he strategically just kept purchasing and falling into the ownership of multiple mines. And then he partnered um, with uh, the Rockefeller, with John D. Rockefeller's brother, um, William Rockefeller, and Henry Rogers of Standard Oil to form Amalgamated Copper, um, which owned Anaconda. And they just started buying up basically everything they could get their hands on here in Butte. And so as they became the primary and dominant company, everything was getting shipped over to Anaconda to be processed in their okay. factories and their smelters. And as they continued to build up that city, they basically built every industry there that they needed to support their mining. Um, so they had bricks works, they had um, iron works, everything they needed to supply the mines here in Butte uh, was made over there in Anaconda oh, or really? up in Great Falls. Okay. So they and Anaconda's a neat little town too. It is. When you go through Anaconda, a, you see the big smelter or the big smokestack, which is the largest freestanding brick structure in the world. Really, it is. Well, you can see it from fifty you, miles you can, either direction. You can actually drive a car around the top of the stack. Oh, really? Yeah, that's how big it is. <laughs> wow! And you can fit the Washington Monument inside of it. Really? Yes. I had no idea, it's but I know that when you drive through town, you see a lot of the old uh, uh, crucibles sitting on, yep. you know, all through yep. town where they melted the, the iron or, or the copper or whatever in the big crucibles and, and some of that. It's just, it's just kind of a neat, neat place. Yeah, and that's, I mean, a lot of the stuff that was in those factories and stuff, you know, basically when the companies were sh shutting stuff down, the guys working there grabbed what they could, the rest of it got buried. <laughs> huh. Now, this museum, like I said, is, is really cool. It's, it's massive, uh, is about the only way to, to describe it. Uh, we're going to hit a few of the high points here with Christopher and take a look at some of the different things. But you guys have basically a village set up back here with, yeah. with 35 or 40 houses that all have different aspects of the mining or, or the town and of the mining operation uh, displayed. So yeah, what it is is, so Hellhorn Gulch um, is our, what we call our, our replica mine town. Um, and it was built to kind of show people what Butte looked like uh, in the late 1800s. So around the 1890s. Um, and, um, the room we're standing in right now, this is our, our Sammy Keith doll collection. And actually, a lot of these doll houses you see right here, if you take a close look, you'll notice that they resemble some of the buildings out in Hellroar and Gulch. And that's because these helped kind of inspire the idea and concept behind Hellroar and Gulch, which, again, it's our replica uh, mine town. And so we have um, quite a few interesting exhibits out here. Um, I definitely have my favorites. Um, but the really cool ones, um, the ones that we have some really good artifacts in, we have the First National Bank, which is supposed to be a replica of the First National Bank, which was founded by Andrew Jackson Davis. Um, okay. He's one of our early pioneers here in Butte and Montana's first millionaire. Um, and so this is designed to look like the first 
uh, national bank that was located here in Butte. Um, it's not a perfect replica, but it does a pretty good job of, of actually showcasing it. Um, and we have lots of cool stuff in there, which we do offer some behind the scenes tours. Um, once a month, we do take people into the exhibit. Some, some of the exhibits we kind of uh, each month do different ones, um, and the bank is one of those exhibits that we've gone into before, um, and it's pretty cool because uh, we call it our white glove tour, and we give you a pair of you know cotton white gloves, and we let you pick up artifacts. Um, oh, stuff that is like cool! That. It's very cool. And what experience. what one is that like? Our next one will be on August twenty fifth, um, and we'll be going into the post office the pioneers cabin on the other side um the lawn the chinese laundry building that we have and the durant railroad station wow and which, so you do those every month um we do them we this year we kind of did a select so we started in may um and we're ending with this one in, in august um, but the intention is to start offering those regularly um, this was kind of our test run to see if people would actually sign up for them. Um, they've tried it in the past and haven't had the best success with it, but this year I've had half or full. Um, we're only offering six spots on the tour just because a lot of our exhibits, you know, getting more than six or seven people in there can be a little little tight <laughs> and so uh, how do you crowded. how do you schedule these online um, or so yeah you can book the them through the web or? you can book them through the website uh, online. and what's your website just it's you, we'll, we'll try and mention it a couple of times okay it's uh miningmuseum.org uh, okay. is our website and that you can book general admission underground tours the white glove tours when we're offering them um any any tours that or events that are for, uh, admissions will be available through those sites we also have some ghost hunts um, that are we're helping to do here at the museum that are available through the site as well um, which is something we're doing um, more regularly is paranormal stuff um, i don't that seems to be that, that seems to be really much, popular it is uh, right now it's, yeah and, and butte seems to have a lot of it going on and it seems to be very popular with people um, that's a little outside of my personal realm just I'm more interested in the, I'm more interested in the stories, I guess, uh, than the than the ghosts. Right. But, um, it is pretty cool experiences, though. From what I'm told, people have a great time. Um, they really enjoy it. They're done very well. Um, but all of that, like I said, is through the website. Um, but the white glove tours that that's run by me um, as the curator. I I take those, and we intend to have more than just me doing them. But for now, that's kind of the test run was to see how it would go and it's been a very cool experience um, we've gotten to go through and show people you know instead of just looking through the windows you can actually look at the artifacts and see them a little bit better um, so it, it offers a, a really cool experience and it's not that much more expensive than taking our underground tour um, the white glove tour is $25 a person um, so it's just four dollars more um, and that's across the board $25 so it's I believe 12 and up is what our limit is for age, and that's only because given that we're handling some right. artifacts that are pretty old, we just don't want to take the risk of somebody dropping one and uh, anything like that. Cool. And, and your underground tours, uh, you do those every day? We do those every day. Um, we do recommend booking them ahead of time, usually, especially between I the just months. bought the last three yeah, tickets say, at 10 <laughs> o'clock this morning. Yep, and so, so <laughs> there you go. We usually, by, by noon, 
every ticket is sold. Um, and we have days in the peak season where you'll, when we get here to work at 9.30 before we open up, every spot is already gone, is sold. Um, and, that, and, and we haven't even opened yet. So. And the underground tour takes you what, 100 feet, 200 feet? 100 feet down underground. Uh, so it's taking you down to the 100-foot station of the Orphan Girl Mine. Um, and uh, that 100-foot station is, a, is, is quite old. Um, we believe it was started sometime about 1921, so it's a little over 100 years old now. Um, it's very well maintained. It's an hour and a half tour that takes about 30 minutes on the surface and then an hour uh, to an hour and five minutes or so underground. Um, kind of depends on how the group's moving um, right. and everything like that, but we typically try to do about 30 minutes on the surface and an hour underground. Um, and the underground portion, you, you get a hard hat when you start the tour. You've got to wear a hard hat underground. You get lights. Um, a lot of the mine that you're going to be walking through going down was all tunneled and built by volunteer miners um, that all worked in the mines here in Butte okay. uh, and were a big part of getting the museum started. Um, and they helped build the, the drifts that you'll be walking down to get to that 100-foot station. But the 100-foot station down there is part of the original workings. Cool. I'm, I'm excited about getting to do that. It's a very cool experience. I love going down there. Um, when I do tours, it's always a fun time. Uh, I have a great time with my tour groups. Oh, Good. My problem is, is I talk too much. <laughs> oh, really? So, yeah, because I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I can run out. Of, I, I, I start looking at my clock, and I'm like, oh, we're supposed to be underground, and we still got some things to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I have that problem, too, to be right honest with you. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so so... This is set up, you said, as uh, like what Hell Roaring Gulch would be set up. So Hell Roaring, and the name Hell Roaring Gulch actually comes, so it's funny you mentioned Evil Knievel earlier before we started because Evil Knievel, was, there was a competition and uh, a little girl won and her prize was supposed to be getting to meet and hang out with Evil Knievel. Okay. Evil Knievel didn't show up. He forgot? He, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, he may have forgotten. Maybe he was, maybe he had... Drank a little too much the night before. I'm not sure. He part, Maybe he was partying hard like he always did, but he didn't show up to the event. And so the consolation prize instead was to name our little town here. Oh, okay. And so she named it Hellroar and Gulch. Um, and the, actu the actual city was always known as Butte. And before it was incorporated as Butte, it was known as Butte City. Um, and actually the person who came up with that name, his name is Dr. Anson Ford, and he was one of the original pioneers here. He's one of the first few guys to show up. And he, the story is, is that he named it after Big Butte. Um, and I found an article that actually quotes the whole thing. And, and the guy that was with him was Thomas Porter. And he said he wasn't sure if he was talking about Big Butte, Little Butte, or Timber Butte. Um, and it could have been all any of the three, but <laughs> given what what Doctor Ford's quoted as saying, he I think he was talking about Big Butte because he said it's you know it's our biggest um, land like landscape. Um, I'm thinking of the word here. I'm not gonna think of the word. Landmark. Landmark. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, I was I was taxing yeah, mine too. <laughs> my brain sometimes gets a little too fast, and I can't. Uh, but it was our our most prominent landmark in the area, and said. Well, we should name it Butte Boys. Um, and if it hadn't been named Butte, it was going to be named after another city from back where all these guys were from, like Ohio or Pennsylvania or something. Uh, so I'm kind of glad that Dr. Anson Ford stood up and said, no, let's name it Butte. Um, yeah. And it's a little bit of a unique name. Um, pretty cool, cool, pretty cool little quip, little story. 
Well, let's take a quick walk around right. and, and talk about some of the some of the different displays and stuff. I know when I was here before, you had one on some of the different sori- or, uh, fraternal groups uh, yeah. and some of that, that. I found that one highly interesting. So uh, we've got two exhibits that talk about two different organizations. Um, we have the Knights of Pythias, um, which is a fraternal organization that does a lot of community work. Um, they are still around today. Um, they're an international organization. Um, they're probably not quite as big as they used to be, um, but they're, they, they're still going pretty strong, still donating lots of money to charities and trying to help people out where they can. Um, and then next to them, on the other side, we have the Ancient Order of the Hibernians, another fraternal order. Um, that one, you have to be Catholic and Irish <laughs> to okay. be a part of. That is the Or of Irish descent, I should say. Um, but you, you, there's, there's, those are two of the big requirements to be. But their organization, again, also very good about helping the community out. Um, they don't restrict themselves just to helping Catholics anymore. That's what the organization started out as, was to help the Irish Catholics. Um, but it has evolved, and they're uh, a good fraternal order that does look out for the communities that they're based in. Um, and and, they do and a lot most, of of these, most of these are just look through the window yeah, uh, situations mm-hmm. unless you're on the white glove tour. Yeah, and we have a few exhibits that do have openings that you can step into and see a little bit better. Um, but the reason we have the exhibit set up this way is to protect the artifacts more right. than anything. Um, I would love to let people just wander through, but uh, then artifacts would go missing or get broken fairly easily, I think. Um, so the White Glove Tour is kind of our way of offering that opportunity to really get a close-up, hands-on look at some of the really cool stuff we have here. Um, and as we came down this first street, you had a schoolhouse. You've yes. got uh, the St. James Hospital, City Hall, the Knights of Pythias. Uh, Zubik's Art Studio, which is his photography studio, is one of our photographers here. Okay. And then our print shop, which is actually... So it hasn't operated in a few years, but we used to print all of our own materials. Oh, really? The museum. Yeah, we had a... So you were actually using the print shop we for... We did, yeah. We had a gentleman who could run it, and we're working on potentially getting myself and another employee here trained to run the print shop again so we can start offering some different things and running that thing the machines again um, and are you going to sure. set all the print type and everything yeah exactly oh geez you're so. going to have a full-time job forget the one you've got going <laughs> right now i can't even imagine having having seen some of these different printing presses oh, from, it's, it's from the old days stuff. having to sit there and write it all out on the, on the little print uh uh what are they their forms they're so there's they have the little um they're usually made out of lead the little right. type letters that you could set or um you used to use they used to use wood blocks that they would carve right and all that to to print and and then you'd press the paper onto the yep. ink that's why it was called a printing print press. press yeah you'd have to yeah just um, amazing to think and and you got to set them all upside down too don't you yes i believe so it's all backwards <laughs> so that you can print it pro- it's a pretty incredible process and yeah. actually i Speaking about that is just the history, just a little history knowledge. Uh, the first movable type um, was actually made on porcelain, and then the most popular movable type before Gutenberg produced his Bible was actually made out of copper and bronze. Um, okay. And the fir- the oldest known movable type comes from China and Korea, and there's a uh, 
Korean Buddhist text that was printed with bronze movable type um, about 76 years before Gutenberg printed wow. his Bible um, in, uh, with, the, with his press. So um, that's just one of those little things. I always find it interesting when you find stuff like that where for, for the most people think Gutenberg's Bible was the first printed with right. movable type, and actually it wasn't the first printed with movable type. Now, they've got a copy of uh, a Gutenberg press at the Computer Museum, Museum in Bozeman. Bozeman. Yes. Yeah, I've been and it was there. pretty fascinating. It's, we did a podcast there also. Okay, cool, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. a very cool little museum. We've been there, uh, I've been there once, but we really enjoyed it over there. I like the stuff they have. Yeah, and then we're, we turned the corner here and we hit... Uh, uh, the Undertakers. The Undertakers. And that's Haber the Hibernian Hall. Hibernian. So Boy, I'm glad you said that word because I was going to mess it up all kinds of ways. And then we got Victoria's rooms with a Victoria looking out in one yeah. of the windows. And uh, we're ready to turn on to the next little street here. Yeah, and and this, we have the jail. The jail is the, and the slash marshal's office. This is kind of our little main street here in the town. Um, so we have our drugstore, which the drugstore is kind of a mix of what you would see in the late 1800s and a little bit of earlier or a little bit later, like 1920s, 30s, because we do have a soda fountain bar in here. Okay. Um, and that obviously probably not in this type of style been there in the 1800s, but it's actually one of the old soda fountain bars from town so we kind of had to, couldn't not do it right uh, well of course honor that it's history. still history 1920 yeah, still history exactly and so. then so we have our assayer's office which the assayer's the guy who if you were pulling some ore out of the ground you'd take it to him and he would take it and crush it up and check it out chemically and and see what your actual contents of you know gold or silver or copper was um Per tonnage and, per tonnage, and, yeah. and quality, and that yeah, they would they would take a few pieces of ore from one from let's say you brought out a mine car full of ore. They take one or two pieces of that ore, assay it, and that would give you a pretty good estimate of what your quality of ore was. So your percentile being, you know, if it's a, uh, a saying at forty five percent copper, for as an example, or versus you know sixty or seventy or less, you know, in the twenties, and so that guy. The assayer was probably one of the more important people in a, a mining camp in the sense that he kind of helped set the prices of the materials. And he was one, probably the richest guy in town, too, as it, as it came off on his clothes and oh, ended up in his pockets, pockets yeah. and some of that kind of stuff. I wouldn't doubt it. Um, that's probably why a lot of companies started employing their own assayers. <laughs> why? So that they could still get rich so, because well, the company wouldn't have any I, idea what, it, what was going in his pocket that's either. That's probably true. <laughs> um, we have our general store, of course. The general store uh, over there would be your basic. I mean, the general store they we almost what you would think of as like Walmart today. It's right. a place where you can get almost anything you need. Um, and, and again, so, it was kind of a service center. I know yeah, I've noticed and, going through so many of these different museums, they had the counter with the scale on it and the bins. And the the grocer, the the man that was running it, because I think it was mostly men doing yeah. this stuff back in the day, uh, he would dish up. You know, you say you want five pounds of flour. He would dish, dish it up, up, put it in the bag, and and send you out the door with it. Versus you going and looking on all the shelves at the canned goods. Yep, it was definitely a full a full service store. Um, and you're you're not wrong as far as men being the prominent is be part of that was is your typical mining camp you had 20 men for every woman 
Um, so there weren't a lot of women in the mining camps for a number of reasons. Um, part of it being, it was a very hard life going out into the West and living in those mining towns. And most women didn't want to do that. It right. wasn't even that they, it was not that they couldn't, they just chose not to. Um, plenty the, of stories. The towns were pretty rough too. I think that the towns a lot of times were pretty rough places to raise were. a family. Yeah, and that's definitely, it wouldn't be typically until you saw big industry coming into towns where then you would start to see families moving in. And that's the same for Butte. It wasn't until the 1870s when the big money was starting to flow into Butte and, and the more industrial side of mining was showing up. Then guys would start moving their families to Butte instead of just coming by themselves and working and sending that money back home. Because living in the West was dangerous. It wasn't right. an easy life, not just because of the work you were doing, but because of the people you were around. I mean, Territories, uh, for example, Montana wasn't a state yet when Butte got started. It was a territory. The territories were where bad guys went to hide. That was well, places they could escape, you know, most of the law. Right. Uh, and we have plenty of stories of guys like, you know, Wild Bill Hickok, um, Bat Masterson, um, you know. Oh, just all the, just yeah, all those, the outlaw, those, or outlaws those, and in-laws. I mean, the in-laws were just as bad as the outlaws exactly, in those and days. those guys, you know, they're more akin to bounty hunters than the law or right. the sheriffs. But, you know, those guys, were, there was a reason those stories became famous. And Butte has plenty of those stories, too, um, of guys that, you know, the rough and tumble crowd and things like that. But Butte also didn't take, too kind, like not just Butte, but Montanans in a whole, they didn't take too kindly to the criminal element. So they did start kind of pushing that stuff away as quick as they could because they were more interested in I, making a living and making a living and, yeah. and actually settling down and raising a family. And so, you know, that's why Montana has so many good ranches, uh, good ranching communities, good mining communities, um, because people banded together and realized it's a lot better to work as a team and team effort to take care of each other. And survive than it is to have people constantly shooting each other in the street, stuff like that. Now you've got an optical parlor here. Yes. And was was uh, eyewear kind of prominent in the late 1800s, mid 1800s? I know Benjamin Franklin, I guess, had a pair of glasses. Yeah. So but... he, I believe, Benjamin Franklin is actually responsible for inventing the bifocals, okay, um, as we know them today. Um, so it, then they must have had opticals long time before him too then. Yeah, and so from what I've been able to research, um, we have pretty much evidence going back to like Greece and Rome and Egypt of them attempting, not necessarily glasses as we think of them, but making magnifying devices so they okay. could see better. Um, because eyesight has been a pro bad eyesight has been a problem with with humans for a very long time. It's not just the the TVs and video games doing it to us like they like to tell us. Right. <laughs> well, this is the thing that's that's interesting about this too is as we're talking about these different places like the optical center, the barber shop, and bathhouse, and uh, the blacksmith shop, and all that. When you come and look through the windows or look into the little doors that they've got in here. These places are packed full of actual artifacts that, yes. that were used in each one of these buildings. So you walk into the optical center here and you see an uh, uh, old chair that I'm sure the optician sat in along with the place. Well, no, that's where the patient sat because you got the chin yep, the deal chin so that you can look can... through the different uh, magnifiers to see what glass power you needed. And then he's got over here a table with all of the items to be able to cut the glass to the shape of the frames and 
I guess they were making the frames. Uh, yeah, they the would've... electricians would have made the frames yep. too. So he had to be a tinsmith. Yep. Back then, um, you know, a lot of industries like this were, you know, self-contained in a sense where you weren't just the doctor doing the eye exams. You were also creating the glasses, cutting the glass, making the frames, um, customizing those frames to the patient. Um, and it's the same if you go into the dentist's office. Um, now, was he will... out taking the teeth out of the corpses for his uh, dentures? <laughs> I mean, this um, is a real thing. People may wouldn't... think I'm joking no, on yeah, this, that, but that was a I... big industry. Like in the Civil War, yep. they ran around and pulled the teeth out of all the soldiers. That was, They were making money selling they, dentures. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, I will tell you, before actual dentists existed, um, the barber shops were your dentists. Um, they were also they also did minor surgeries from what they I did, like the bloodletting and yep. some of that type of stuff. They, That's what that barber pole. Yep. What the That's colors what the, are for? The colors are for. So um, the de the barber shop was kind of an all encompassing place um, that did a little bit of everything, not just cut your hair. They pulled your teeth, um, and I will tell you probably wouldn't have been very fun to get your teeth pulled at the barbershop because I've seen some photos from the late 1800s of it and it doesn't look too fun. No. Um, they didn't have anesthetics, for example, so you felt every little bit of it. I'm sure. And it usually required one guy holding you down while the other guy pulled your teeth. Yeah. Um, here as we come around this corner, we do have, you know, our lawyer and our uh, doctor's office. Um, as well as a mine company office over here and our telegraph office there. Um, the telegraph office has lots of cool stuff in it, a lot of old telegraphs, um, telephones, um, some of that stuff. And why that's pretty important to us is that, you know, with that copper boom that came from um, Butte for Butte, kind of came right at the same time that the telephone came out. Um, it came right at the same time as electricity became commercialized. Um, Electricity had been being used for almost 50, 60 years prior to um, Edison and Tesla going through their process and actually creating viable commercially available electricity. Um, but we had people experimenting with it as early as the late 1700s, uh, early 1800s. Um, like the voltaic pile came out right. in 1801. Yeah, um, this is, I, I'd never really put together until I was at uh, that museum in Ely when we were talking to that curator about the copper revolution. You always hear about the industrial revolution or all these other revolutions, but putting copper into a revolution type uh, uh, context just really kind of hit me hard because everything, everything was run on copper. And it still is. And it still is. It's still... the. Copper, in, in my opinion, and there I'm sure will be plenty of people who will disagree with me on this, um, copper, in my opinion, is the most important metal used in human society today. And I, would, I would agree with you on that. We went to the Copper uh, Museum in Clark, Clarkdale, I think it's called, Arizona. Okay, Clarksdale. At, yeah, Clarksdale. Have named, you been to that museum? I haven't, but it's named, oh. just so you know, Clarksdale, Arizona is named for William or for William Clark, one of our copper kings. Okay. He owned the mining operations in Clarksdale, which is actually where the name came from. But the, the displays that they have in there of all kinds of different things, all the way back, like you said, to the Greeks. Yep. You know, uh, uh, urns and, and pots and, and just artwork and everything, you know, because copper is such a uh, Mal it's, malleable. Yeah, That's malleable. the word I'm yep. looking for. 
And you can, it's soft, you can do all kinds of things with it, and then you add tin to it, and you got bronze, and you add, what zinc, do you add? If you zinc, add zinc, you get brass. Brass, and, so, and you can make anything with that. And those are both, so I actually gave a presentation here at the museum um, in June about the history of copper in human civilization. And so going back to when the first humans using copper and what they were using it for. And so we know now through research, the Native Americans around the Lake Superior region um, of the United States right. were processing and using copper 10,000 years ago. Really? Uh, and so they, they actually were for about, from about 9,000 BC to about 5,000 BC were actually mining and processing and using the copper or the native copper around Lake Superior and right around 5000 BC for some reason that has not been discovered yet they stopped using copper and went back to flint really um, and the prevailing theory is is that processing native copper and processing flint is almost about the same amount of effort but it's a little bit less effort to collect the flint than it is to get the copper out and so they just transitioned back to it or there's another theory that maybe disease kind of wiped out a large portion and that just the concept of it was lost by the people who survived. Isn't that interesting? And well and what's really interesting is that that occurred at the same time Europe began its copper age. So as the Native wow. Americans here were essentially reverting back to the stone age from what is their copper age, Europe and Asia and the Middle East were now entering their copper age. How cool is that? And then the last part of Hellroaring Gulch that we have is on this side. So we have um, our milliners, um, which would be you know your dress shop. That's the, oh okay, uh, basically like a tailor shop. Yeah, it's a tailor shop, but it's all for it's uh, specifically for women. Okay, um, so it would be your dresses and your hats, all that kind of stuff. Your tobacco shop, which would have been a very prominent um, location. All, of course, before tobacco shops, everything was through the general store. So your general store would have big barrels of tobacco to sell um, right back then tobacco was very popular not just smoking but chewing, chewing. Um, in fact you guys should hear a pretty interesting story about that on the underground tour i won't tell it because okay. i don't want to okay. steal it um, actually, and this is the livery stable this is the livery stable and that's michael he's actually going to be your tour guide um when you guys do your tour um, okay so like I said, you guys should hear some really good stories from him as well. Um, and as we move past the livery, which we do have some really cool stuff in there, um, some different saddles, um, harnesses, harnesses, chaps. Yeah. Um, we have now our Chinese um, remedy drugstore as well as the laundry. And so these were actually from a shop here in Butte. Oh, really? That was saved and kept here. Um, and the laundry over here, again, we actually, a lot of the stuff we have in here, um, it came from the Chinese laundry that was here in town. In fact, uh, about three weeks ago, um, the grandson of the shop owner was here at the museum. Visiting. Oh, really? Yeah, and he actually gave us some photos of his grandfather when he first arrived and built the laundry. Oh, that's awesome. And then right over there, we do, we kind of walked past it and talk about, we do have the, the, the quote unquote supervisor's house, um, which is supposed to be the mine supervisor is most of the mine supervisors lived on or near the mine yards, um, just okay. because they needed to be around and be accessible. And then this is a little, 
uh, our machine shop, which needs some love. We're working on it right now. Um, each of the exhibits is getting its, I, I'm kind of going to eat each exhibit as the months go by and, and reorganizing and, and revitalizing them to kind of really, my intention here with the museum is to make each exhibit look as if it's a snapshot from that time period so you and, can and easily stand most of these buildings the, the the ones i've looked into uh you've done an awesome job of that i well, mean thank you. it's all set up just about the way you'd expect the shop to be set up when you show up yeah and that's the goal is so that you you know visiting the museum can look and almost imagine people walking around and actually working in those shops and living in there and and doing those daily tasks. Okay, and you've got an ice house set up over here. Ice house and sauerkraut house, and these are original buildings that were brought in from their locations and put in really? to the town. So, these... so was sauerkraut a big deal here? Um, I, I always think of German when I think of sauerkraut, so, not Irish. Well, and so that's again, going back to the, we had, uh, you know, Irish is the ones that today people focus on. Right. Um, but we had, people from all over the world you know meterville was a highly uh, italian neighborhood um, we had a big group population of italians we had fintown which is a big group of finnish and okay. swedish um, immigrants that were living in the area and the sauerkraut factory i actually think wasn't german in this case it was actually swedish um, okay had... now i'm gonna i'm gonna throw something out here the swedes were they mostly involved in the in the timber part of it um or were they, because I always think of Swedes as being timbermen. I imagine. You know, doing the tie hacks and the. They, they probably were a big part of the timber industry. I wouldn't be surprised to learn that. Um, but I don't know for sure. Um, I'd have to look into that one. Okay. Yeah, I just it's just one of those things that I've always kind of heard. I the can, Swedes were big into the timber aspect of, of development, you know, like in yeah. the tie camps. Um, it, the, wouldn't, it wouldn't be surprising, um, especially given the amount of timber needed in the mining industry. Um, there, if you had come to Butte in the between 1930 and 1970, the 1970s, uh -huh. you would not have seen any trees <laughs> right. around here. And that's because every tree around here was cut down for fuel or to be used for cribbing or timbering in the mines. And so it wouldn't be surprising at all if they were involved in that aspect of the, the, the industry here. I mean, Anaconda had its own timber company that it owned to do all of that. So um, wouldn't be surprising. People did tend to stick with what they knew. Um, a right. lot of our early underground miners were Cornish actually here in Butte because the Cornish had years of experience mining copper over in Cornwall. And okay. so they were coming here because they knew they could get a job doing what they already knew, what they were experienced as, um, which is why they were able to get paid well. Um, Butte's miners, at least in the beginning, were the highest, some of the highest paid industrial workers in the country. Really? Yeah. Um, you could make good money working in, in the mines here. Even the prospecting um, guys were averaging between $20 and $50 a day. Um, in the wow. in, in 1860s when they were prospecting, and that's the equivalence in today's money of about $105 a day um, to, to $200 a day, depending. Uh, well, depending I was on. If say, you, if yeah, I think in, it's I think it's higher than if that. If you bring in 50, you're talking probably closer to $700 a day. Yeah. Um, but the $20 a day is about 105 to $110 in today's money. Okay. Um, it kind of just depends on the amount you were getting. But guys, we have plenty of newspaper articles talking about, you know, the prospectors pulling out anywhere from $20, $30, $40, $50 um, 
out of just the gold panning. And so, um, you know, the, as I was saying earlier, you know, they tried smelting that copper and they shipped it. Um, reportedly they made about $50,000 off that first shipment, which for 18, That's not bad. for 1866 <laughs> is quite a bit of money. Um, that's probably getting close to half a million or more in yeah. today's money. Yeah. And you've got an ice house over here, which you don't see very often. You don't, but they were very important uh, buildings. Oh. Um, I mean, that's you would get your ice shipped in from places like the the Great Lakes or Alaska, and then these houses were set up and built for that ice to last. And it wouldn't be, you know, what we think of, like, you go to the grocery store and buy a bag of ice, you get a little seven-pound bag of, of cube ice. They would be shipping huge massive pieces of ice that probably weighed one or two tons or really? more and the reason they would ship it so big is it keeps it, the the ice being that large will keep itself from melting quickly and then right. once they get it into those ice houses it won't melt um, and the ice house was super well insulated super it had drainage insulated. on the bottom and yep. then once they packed the ice in they would they would pack it around uh sawdust in order to keep it from melting and yep. they could keep the ice all year long and then they would just essentially, they'd have somebody who worked there and he would chip off the ice as people needed it. Um, so And put it in their ice box. Yep. Yep. And he's got an ice saw over the top that has yep. Crystal Ice co uh, Company because they would go out onto the lakes and saw. Uh, it'd be big a big blocks. party from what I've seen. And <laughs> they'd have the ice picks that had, or not ice picks, but ice tongs that would grab onto the ice and they'd pull them out with horses. And, yep. It, it's, it was quite the operation back in the day. And it was a whole industry. There's so many industries like that that just you don't even think about well, heck, those kind of things. When we were young, we used to have a milkman that came around the house and delivered milk in the little tin freezer thing that you set out on your porch. But that yeah. guy's long gone. Oh, yeah. So Well, heck, you don't even his see... His children are still around. Yeah, you don't even <laughs> see the newspaper guys anymore these days. But uh, now here's here's a piece that absolutely 100% fascinates the heck out of me. I've seen it, and and I was hoping that we'd get by it. Well, while, while you were here, uh, this is a tractor that is set up with corkscrew drive. If you don't have any idea what a corkscrew drive is, get on YouTube and look at corkscrew drive tractors. They have it's a regular tractor that the wheels have been taken off and it's got a gearbox in the back that will run uh, some corkscrews that are the length of the tractor, probably two foot round and it has ribs on it so that when you push forward the tractor will move forward crawling with those corkscrews. You can also make it go straight sideways either way, you can make it go in reverse. And these things, they floated on top of snow, they floated on top of gravel, water, just about anything. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah, and, and you don't ever get to see them in real person unless no. you come to the World Museum of Mining <laughs> exactly. right here in Butte. I, to my knowledge, <laughs> there's only six left in existence. Um, and this is one of them, and I couldn't tell you where the other five actually are. Um, but I will say this is the Fordson Snow Machine. Um, so they, they created it with the intention of making a snowmobile. Um, right. And from what I understand, its main reason for not being super, super successful is the weight of it caused it to get stuck easy if you didn't have really hard-packed snow or ground to move on. Really? Um, so if it was really fresh, soft pack, it would get stuck. 
um, huh. just by the weight of it. And that maybe it needed bigger fins. It, it may be. I, I wouldn't know. I do know you can look it up on YouTube. Oh yeah, YouTube's and got a guy driving a guy one. driving one that's a newer ver- video. But there's also, if you look it up, you can find one from it running in 1926. Really? And it's it's so it's an old video of one running back when it actually was made. Um, and they ran, they could do about 15 miles an hour. Um, so, which to a lot of people today probably seems pretty slow, but for a vehicle in 1926, that was pretty good. Like you were moving, and especially for what type of vehicle it is. I was gonna going to say, 50, moving across the snow. Well, at 15 miles an hour is a pretty, yeah. good, pretty good clip. Um, so, they didn't make a lot of them either. That was another reason why they're pretty hard to find. Um, and it is a kit that was designed and created to work on the Fordson tractor, which is this tractor here right. sitting next to it. Same tractor, just a different kit using, uh, just a different kit on there to, sh- you know, showcase why you would have these different vehicles. And that was the intention was to make these these kits you could put on the tractor to own one tractor, but a bunch of kits. So you have the capability right. to do all these d- different jobs. And um, that's something you don't find in, in a lot of tools today may a little bit the farm industry is still pretty good about making pretty cool tractors and, and, and devices well, look at the bobcats and the case yeah, the bobcats skid are good, yeah i mean holy smokes you can buy a thousand attachments for those things and you, only need, just about one, every, and yep. you only need the one yeah and so that's one of the industries that's kind of maintained that idea because tools aren't like that anymore right um, you know i have my grandfather's shopsmith from back Oh, the, the shops. Yeah. yeah, and so that you know, it's a drill press, a lathe, a saw, uh, a, a, saw, table, a saw. table saw, all in one device, and you just switch out the parts you need to use it. Right. And today, if you want to get those, you got to buy all those tools individually. Right. And man, it's a. And have a different cord for everyone. Yeah. But there again, if, if you wanted your your saw and then wanted to do something on the lathe, you were constantly having switching to, stuff out. Switching which, stuff yeah, out. I guess in that side, that, that I was going to say, point. and I don't know about the shopsmith, but it seems like it's not the easiest thing to flip everything around. But, but I've never. It's a little bit. Of, I mean, it's a little bit of a, a hassle. Um, I think it's worth it, but that's because again, I'm a bit of a nerd for history. So well, you know, and it's grandpa's, and it's my yeah, exactly. Um, and so here. As we're moving now to outside of the Hellroaring Gulch, we're going into the actual Orphan Girl Mine Yard. Um, so all f- the land that we're all, all the museum is based on is actually all f- was originally different uh, mine claims. Let me ask you another question as we're walking over here. Butte, from what I understand, is built on top of the mine. Yes. And there is nothing but shafts and everything else underneath all of Butte. Is that correct? It is. So um, the majority of the city, uh, especially so uptown, is built over the entire, the mine structure was what I call it, is all your different um, shafts and drifts. Um, right. So shafts are your vertical um, tunnels, if you will, and drifts are your horizontal ones. And okay. And you have your cross cuts and stuff like that. I didn't that. know any of that. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, there's thousands of miles of, of drifts beneath the city. Thousands um, of miles? Thousands of miles. Um, are, now, no, no, there aren't any operations still going, are there? There is the open, so we have the Continental Pit, which is an open pit um, okay. over by the Berkeley Pit. Um, and that is a currently operating mine run by Montana Resources, okay. uh, which is owned by Dennis Washington, um, one of our big guys here in, in Montana. Okay. Um, and his foundation and his companies have been really good to Butte and Montana as a whole. Um, but we also have um, 
Black Butte uh, Silver Mining Company that is going to be hopefully they're working on it um opening up a shaft and and resume and going in underground and, and starting an underground mine um, which would be the first underground mining in butte since uh 1982. now are all of the sh shafts and and uh drifts and that are they flooded now for the most part um i think some of them like our mine the 100 foot levels are above the water line um but the majority Good, i didn't want to put on scuba gear no, when yeah. i went when i went on the tour this afternoon yeah you shouldn't have to worry about getting too <laughs> down there. um but yeah everything is underwater now um for the most part and that is because they all of our mines kind of sit in the natural aquifer that is beneath the city. So um, they were constantly pumping water to operate those mines. Could they even pump it out again in order to run it again? Or That is a wonderful question. Because um, I, I know like they have... let the Homestake mine in, South, in Leeds, South Dakota flood. And I think they said they were never going to be able to get back in there to do any gold mining or anything because really? of the pump. They, they weren't going to be able to pump the water back out. So... I don't know if they could. Um, I would assume based on what I've read about previous operations. So our mine was flooded and, and dewatered multiple times during its years of operation. Okay. Um, but that was intentional. And so I don't know. And that was only, it would sit on, it would sit full of water for a few years and then get dewatered and mined. So it's different than, you know, it's been sitting, all these mines have been sitting full of water for 40 years now. Wow. Um, so it would be a, maybe a different thing. And I don't know, I, I know that I have asked about that to people who know more than I do about that stuff. Um, and I've never really been able to get a definitive answer of whether they would be able to drain and go back. I know a lot of it was backfilled um, oh. with debris and stuff like that as they were moving through. So there, I suppose if the shafts have stayed in good enough condition, they had they would at least maybe have the opportunity or the option to do it but i also imagine it would be very very expensive um, and that could be probably the deciding factor of whether it would be worth it or not i will tell you this butte is known as the richest hill on earth and not just because of what we pulled out of the ground but because of what's still in the ground um, really so, yeah there's there's still a vast amount of mineral wealth sitting beneath the city um, so Eventually, that may be an option eventually, at some point Yeah, eventually the incentive might be there for them to decide, you know what, it's financially worth our time to do it. So huh. um, that's it's hard to say. Wow. Um, and so, now as we're walking, we're walking along, we're coming into more of the mine yard, I guess yes. you would say. Yep. You've got a nice old stamp mill, yep. which was made for uh, crushing the rock as it came out, if I understand that yep. correctly. And I actually, one of our tour guides today told me one of his, somebody on his tours used the word pulverize, which I love so okay. much more. Okay, right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it crushed your rock up and it basically was taking, you know, pieces of ore and making them into a sand-like substance. Um, to and it had great big weights that yeah, ran on a wheel on a cam that would that would come up and down and smash the. Yeah, and well, and what's really interesting about as a device in my so this is one of my history nerd moments. The stamp mill as a concept and as a, and a device dates back to Hellenistic Greece. Um, so really, they've been using this same type of device for over 2,000 years in the mining industry. Now, the difference between what we see at our museum here, this got the right. cast iron parts, theirs were made entirely out of wood. 
um, but it still functioned and was worked the same concept was to crush up your ore and make it usable and easier to smelt and process but rocks harder than wood how would it well so if you use stuff like um, they would have probably used a lot of olive wood um, okay. and olive is a very hard wood um, and so they also probably could have attached stone. Um, I haven't, I, I've seen diagrams of them. Um, I haven't done enough research in to tell you the exact um, makeup of theirs, but I've seen the diagrams from Greece that show almost the exact same device you see sitting right here in front of us. Okay. Um, and so, um, and depending on the type of ore too, um, if you were to roast it first, once the ore is roasted, um, it's much more... Um, Breakable? Breakable. Fracturable? Yeah, fracturable. So that may have been enough of a, that may have been enough to make it so the wood could crush it. It probably would not be nearly as efficient as using the metal well, hammers right, we have right, today. Right. Um, but it's just that concept of this device has been used in the mining industry for thousands of years. That's amazing. Um, and this one here is actually a model that was created in California that, that took the concept a little bit further. Instead of just picking up the hammers and dropping them down, this one, when it drops, it actually spins the hammer. Oh, really? And so it so has a it has rotational. not just a crushing, but a rotational motion. And really? That grind, so not only was it crushing, it was grinding as it hit. And that allowed for even better processing of that, that ore. Wow, that is cool. Okay, now explain these bullet-shaped rocks. So are these, those core samples? These are actually pieces of slag um, that were found here um, when they were doing. They were digging to do a foundation here in Butte um, as part of the reclamation uh -huh. um, process, and they found about a hundred of these buried underground. And so we got a few of them here. So this is from the from the smelters. The smelters, class. yeah. These are from the smelters. And so if you notice, you'll actually see there's a bit of copper in them. Uh -huh. um, that's because. Up until electrolytic refining came out in the 1890s, um, the smelting process was not super efficient. They would actually lose about 20 to 30 percent of the metal into the slag oh, in really? that process. Um, you didn't get, you didn't retain all of the metal, and so. Um, that's why you'll see if you look at older slag like these. Probably my guess would be, probably came from the 1880s, maybe even the 1870s. Um, it's hard to say without. I don't personally know the exact location they were found in. That would probably help me narrow down the age a little bit better if I knew what smelter they came from. Um, but these are. Pieces of slag that weigh about 500 pounds each a piece. They're about 500 pounds a piece. Um, what I like to tell on my tours and what's really fascinating to me is, is if they like, if so, if these were entirely made out of copper, they would weigh about 3,500 pounds. Ooh. Copper is soft and malleable <coughs> as it is. It's very dense okay. and so it's heavy. And so if you've ever picked up a spool of copper wire, you right. know exactly yeah, what I'm yeah. talking about. It's heavy for as small as it is. It's real heavy. Copper ingots. Um, so the we have in our, our, our archives Anaconda's um, handbook, their company handbook from 1921. And so it gives a description of all of the materials they produced from their um, factories around here. And one of those is the copper ingots coming from the refineries. And so the largest ingots they produced were cake ingots, and those would either be round cakes or square cakes. And a round cake would be 20 inches in diameter and 5 inches thick. So it doesn't seem like it's that big, right? No, it's, it's just, uh, yeah. It's Fairly decent size, but not huge. That weighed 500 pounds. Wow. So if you took that and you put it inside of these, this is how I like to do the, the math. You put it inside of you could probably fit 
five or six of those right here, maybe more and so that's how you know if like if it was these were made just purely of copper they would be massive heavy pieces they're still heavy they're 500 oh, yeah. pounds is and 500 no pounds means, is more than i want to pick up yeah one well, i like to tell people you know we leave them sitting out like this because we're not worried about somebody picking them up uh, if you if you can pick up a 500 pound object on your own you're welcome to it <laughs> well now the reason i'm so curious about these is i just ended up with about 10 rocks that are shaped very similar to this okay and i was thinking that they were concrete because they're a gray color but when one of them fractured when i was putting it down because it has fractures in it like this i was able to see crystallized rock running around through it and i didn't know what the heck they were now i've got an idea that these things probably came from a smelter yeah they probably are they are probably slagged from a smelter and so depending on the material being smelted your slag is going to come out a little bit different the right today's, today's well yeah who knows what looks, where these ones came from yeah today's slag almost looks like obsidian um in a lot of the way it's processed but really back then because you had so much metal being contained in it and depending on the type of material you're you're smelting i mean if you were smelting something like zinc or tin or 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 silver you might end up with more of a gray um, and that crystallized rock you see is going to be, so when you're smelting, you're melting everything. Right. And that includes the granite and the quartz and all that stuff right. that's in the, the ore. So that slag does contain all of that stuff. And so you would potentially find veins of it in that slag. Because if you'll notice the way that this is, it's layered. So it uh -huh. didn't all come yeah. out at once. They were scraping off the slag. And as it hard in the next they scrape off more and so you get layers in there and that's why um it's like that is because it takes a process back in 1860 in, in the 1850s the smelting process from getting your ore to having a finished product took about a year wow uh, and they got that down in the 1870s to about four days um and then with electrolytic that's quite the jump quite the jump it took them about 40 years but they got from uh when they when swansea was the main smelting area of the world it would take about a year to process that copper and get it and and realize the the finished product by the time america's industry took over we were into about four days and then electrolytic refining which came out in 1890 1891 um change the whole game because then you could get a hundred percent retention of the metals so your slag was all waste and <laughs> um your metal you were getting you were getting all of it which is actually one of the reasons butte was able to become the dominant copper producer in the country because our copper ores didn't just have copper in them they had gold and silver right and so not only were we getting all of the copper now we're getting all of the gold and silver so we're making immense amount of profit on that and we we're able to produce even more copper than say michigan which was producing all native copper we were able to produce more copper than them because of our that electrolytic refining process coming into play and allowing us to get a hundred percent of the metal out of the rock wow well, Linda, now you have your answer to what those rocks are in the yard. <laughs> yeah, that's research. Yeah, and that is cool. Size-wise, I mean, you can get big. Yeah, ours are ours yeah. are probably About just a little bit bigger than that. Okay, but yeah, and which you you mentioned earlier, anaconda and and their big crucibles. Right. It's the same, if you notice, that actually is a very similar shape right. to those big crucibles, and that's because they use big crucibles to make that stuff. So, um, wow. And they essentially, you're literally just what they would use a lot of the times here in Butte to flux um, the copper ore as they were smelting it was iron. So they would put a little bit of iron in there and it would grab up 
all of your waste and pull it out and then you'd scrape that off into your, your crucible to get rid of your slag. Now here's something I haven't seen in a lot of years. We just walked into, what, what building is this? So this is our hoist, our hoist house, um, which also happens to hold our mock-up of the shower and dry. Um, okay. Which would have been its own building at one point, but this we des we built we turned the mine office into the shower and dry so that people could see just an idea of what the guys coming out of a shift were going into. And so they were all able to shower before they went home. Yeah, they were able to shower before. And I will tell you, we have conflicting stories from guys who worked in the mines. So this isn't necessarily from research, but we have guys on both sides who worked in mines around the country. Some of them say you went straight into the showers wearing your diggers. Some of them will say, no, we didn't do that. We got undressed, went in, showered, and washed our, hand, our clothes out by hand. And so we know both are true right. because obviously these guys lived it. Um, so it probably depended on the mine you worked in. Um, it depended probably on the individual, whether you were, were willing to just go in and shower in your clothes. Um, I will tell you, if you were working in the copper mines, you had to rinse out your clothes when you came up. Because if right. you didn't, your clothes were going to disintegrate pretty quickly from all the sulfuric acid. And that's because oh, really? our mines here, most of our ore here is, sulf is sulfides. And so as those sulfides, that sulfur in the ore mixes with the groundwater, it turns into sulfuric acid. And so that acid would be dripping on on the guys working in the mines, and so so did they end up with open sores? They had and stuff all so the time? yeah, they would get what they called copper sores, and so on their necks and their hands, they would get open wounds from the acid burns. Oh. Um, and so they always called it copper water, but it was essentially sulfuric acid. Is the is what it was? Um, it was probably a little diluted because it was mixing with the groundwater, right. so it wasn't just pure acid, but it was enough where guys would get copper sores um, on their necks, on their hands. And what did they do for it? I mean, did, did they come out and wash with baking soda or something in order to I neutralize the acid? Or, or I actually don't an know. An alkali? I imagine so. You'd have to do something, but I don't know I don't know answer. if borax is a, it would be a, an alkaline pH mm. to where washing with borax would be. Because that was a common cleaner that was a common time. yeah that was a very common cleaner at the time I wouldn't I'd have to look into that a little bit to see because um, I'm not sure okay but what struck me is when I walked in here you've got a sink. A, a, a sink that is about five foot in diameter with a foot pedal on the bottom that you step on they had these back when I was a kid in all of the bathrooms yep, yep. but I haven't seen one in years and then they put borax soap yep in the top in the top yeah. there's a little borax container that you put a little put a little lever and the borax comes down into your hands and yeah, yeah, and I, I just haven't. And they're marble, aren't they? Or what I are? I believe so. They I mean, look it's, like marble. It's definitely this is definitely stone. So yeah, for, and I am looking at it, it it looks like marble to me. Yeah, I just I haven't seen one in years. I didn't. I I never even thought about missing them either till I yeah. walked in here and all of a sudden first grade comes back. I mean, it, to me, the concept of it works a lot better. You don't have to use your hand to turn the water on. Or, so, or, or flail your or hand flail, and, yeah, for, and they sensors. go to the next one and flail and they go to the next one until one of them finally recognize somebody wants some dang water. Yeah. Isn't that the truth? And so um, this room here is the hoist, the hoist engine room. So this is where the hoist engine was uh, located. Um, and so 
Um, I won't get, I guess, too much into it because I don't want to spoil the tour for you guys. But well, let me just kind of explain what it is. You've got some major uh, spools that yep. had cable on them. Large steel cable. Large um, steel cable and uh, a big electric motor, it looks like, here on the end. Yep. It was probably steam at one point in time, I'm yeah, assuming. Yeah, so our early hoists here in Butte would have been operated by steam power and even the earlier, um, smaller... Uh, hoisting operations were probably operating on horsepower, so you would literally, uh, the original version of horsepower, I should say, right. um, that were, so you'd have devices where the horses could walk and, and operate those. Um, but as you got into the bigger ones, they would use steam power or compressed air um, to okay. operate. And, and so I can tell you in the 1930, 1934, Anaconda had um, four electric hoists, and 11 compressed air and a few steam. So it must have been the 1920s, but they still had the majority of their hoist operating off of compressed air and steam. Now, we just went through Silver Star. Okay. And Silver Star, Montana has a bunch of those old uh, wheels. The, have you been to Silver Star? I haven't. Oh, you need to go down there. They've got the wheels set up on the outside that, uh, that were running these cables okay. uh, and, uh, for the compressors and stuff. And they're all set up. They're they're 22 foot tall. Yeah, they're. I imagine they've got to be massive. We actually have an air compressor in the other room here. Okay, yeah, yeah. So they would have had they had massive air compressors and massive steam engines that ran these things in the beginning before the electricity. There's a picture that we took in Silver okay, Star that the shows Leonard how mine. the compressors work yeah and this guy supposedly hauled all this stuff down in the 80s and set it up to where you can see it as you're driving down the road it's, okay. it's really pretty cool lloyd harkins so <laughs> ironically we have the lloyd man harkins mine yard right behind this which is lloyd harkins that gentleman right. he all of our big equipment is all our mine yard out here is named after him because he also helped get this museum set up That's cool. okay so he was one of our big guy big help get us. Well, you need to take the drive 30, well, I'm, I guess it's over the mountain. Well, no, it's probably only 35 miles from here. Yeah, it's not too far. I, and, I, and just pull off the road and look at that yard. It's just okay. unbelievable. I will have to get over there and check And for the out. listeners, it's only 35 miles kind of southeast of Butte okay. is kind of where it's at. Or if you go to Whitehall, it's 17 miles from Whitehall. Okay. Uh, and and it's a pretty neat place to, to pull your car off and get some neat pictures of some big, big mine equipment. Or pulleys and, yeah. and some of these uh, winches and some of that stuff. Yeah, and these, so, I oh mean, now I'm, my brain is thinking of that. So, <laughs> um, when can I go to Silver yeah. Star? <laughs> uh, but, I mean, these hoists, so one of the things we like to tell and, and emphasize is the hoist operators were, you know, some of the most important guys on the mine yard. And so, for a long time, they were the only guys that had to actually get trained and certified and educated to do their jobs. Okay. Um, for the most part, you could show up to a mine yard and they basically hand you a shovel and make you a mucker, or they'd make you a tool guy, which is a nipper. And so you're either running tools or, or shoveling ore, um, and then eventually they'd maybe start letting you handle explosives, all kinds of stuff, but none of that required formal training. This guy had to be formally trained and certified to operate the hoist, uh, and that's because if he screws up his job, I mean, it could be catastrophic. It right. Cost lives, cost millions of dollars. Um, one of the things I like to tell people on my tours is, in the state of Tennessee, it is actually a felony to speak to a hoist operator while he's operating the hoist. You really? Can go to prison 
for doing I, I guess so. I could see that. And that's because if you distract him <clears throat> and he misses something, it could be, I mean, you could cost people their lives. And so it's not a felony in Montana, but it is, um, you will get fired if you were to speak to the hoist operator while he's operating the hoist. Um, and, and if you're not important, especially, you're getting, you're getting canned pretty quickly. The thing is, can you even speak to him? I would imagine that the, that the noise of all of this is beyond the point of conversation. Probably, yeah, you're not gonna just be talking to him. You'd probably have to be yelling at him. Um, but even then, just that, it's just, just a, a small distraction because he's listening to those bells right there for sending up these signals and these codes. And so if he misses a bell, you know, he could send this, the cage to the wrong place. He can move it at the wrong speed. Men and materials moved at vastly different speeds. Oh, really? Uh, and that's with the weight differences. Right. If you were to move men at the speed you move material, when you stop that cage, it's going to bounce 30 or 40 feet up in the air. Wow. And, and, and up and down. And so if you're a guy standing in that cage, your day is about to get really bad. <laughs> Okay, and he's got a code of mind signals, which he said was all run off of the bells. And these are universal to the entire state of Montana. Every underground mine in this state. Just uses, in this state? They don't do the I, same? I do not know if they use the same codes across the country. This was actually it passed by the state of Montana back in the 30s. Okay. So this is a universal code for Montana. I, I would imagine, given the amount of training needed for this type of job, you probably do have a, a universal, universal code across the country so that guys could move around the country. And that was the purpose of this is so guys could move between different mines and not have to relearn or learn new codes. Um, and whether you worked in a coal mine, a platinum mine, a copper mine, or a silver mine here in Montana, you're gonna be using those same codes. I can see I would have problems already. Because they've got bells that go station one, two, three, four, five, six, all the way up to 11, and I've only got 10 fingers. <laughs> and it gets a little bit more, it gets a little bit more complicated too, but there is actually a math equation that will get you, um, if you add 10 to the station number and divide by five, it'll give you your codes. And so for, I always use station number one for this because I was a grunt in the Marine Corps and math is not a strong suit of mine. Okay, okay. Uh, unless I have crayons to count with. Them, <laughs> well, I got good. fingers, <laughs> but only to um, 10. But so if you add 10 to one, you get 11. Divide okay. 11 by five, you get two with a remainder of one. Okay. And so that's your code for that station. And that does, that equation goes, it will work all the way down. And so if you didn't have your sign or your sign wasn't readable, if you knew what station you were on, you could at least get the code for the station you were on by doing that simple math. Um, I say simple math, but it's not that simple in my opinion. Right. <laughs> Do those numbers on those uh, boards up there have anything to so those represent the stations. So that one is the 100-foot station, and that was how the hoist operator knew where his cage was. And so as he was lowering it down, that arrow would move with the cage. And so if, as he was getting close to the 100-foot station, he would know, okay, I'm getting close. And if they were supposed to stop at the 100-foot station, as he was getting there, the guy in the cage would ring the bell to stop and he would know, okay, I'm stopping at the 100 foot station. And so that would tell him roughly where his cage was at in the mine. That's really and they have, they have a lot of different meanings for the, bell, or for the bells. Yeah, bell number one is the bell hoist, bell stop if in motion, two it balls, bells lower men, three bells hoist men, four bells is blasting signal. So if you hear four bells, you better be hiding. 
Uh, well, you wouldn't you, you wouldn't stay in the mine for that. So, uh, that's that's doing the four bells is basically okay. That's um, we want out, and we're because blasting is about to take place. And so at that point, if anyone's in the mine, it's just the guys blasting, um, not not uh, anyone else. That and then you go up to nine levels. bells, which is the danger signal. Yeah, and so nine <clears throat> bells was the universal like emergency code. Um, and so any kind of emergency, whether it's fire, anything else, you were, you were setting up nine bells and that would tell them up top, something's wrong, we need to get ready to, to address that issue. What, so they would send out word, an ambulance would come, they would get ready to deal with whatever issue was going to be coming up. That's when you call your friend that you don't know well named Big John and have him hold up the timbers till you get out? Yeah. <laughs> so they had down there where they can push a button or something? So you guys will see this on the tour. There's a rope um, that oh. you would pull. And yeah, there was, electric, there was electric signals that came all the way down. There was a rope that they would pull and that would send up oh, okay. and the signal to ring the bells okay. up here. Hopefully that rope is in good shape. Uh, for, so, <laughs> I mean, for example, the Granite Mountain fire, when that fire happened, uh, it actually did damage the cables and they, they weren't able to communicate. And that was part of the reason that some of the problems happened is they weren't able to, like, they were able to notify that there was an emergency and then some of the damage took place and they weren't, at one point, they lowered a couple guys down and those guys couldn't signal back up to, hey, get us out, we're going into the fire and... They lost a couple. Yeah, they more. lost a couple because of them for that. And then you've got a case here with with basically the setup, a, a panorama, with uh, or diorama, whichever one it is, with the mine setup on top. Yeah. And then just shows the the model down below with the train cars and different and this stations. Was built by a guy who worked <clears throat> in the mines. Um, and from what we we have a newspaper article about it that says this was supposed to be the Leonard mine, and he. Um, he built this during his spare time, and then when he retired, he presented it to the company and said, hey, I made wow. this. Wow, <laughs> that's and cool. So his last name is Trudeau. I do not believe he has any relations to... Justin? Yeah, but <laughs> I, I don't know off the top of my head. Um, but I, I can't think of his first name to save my life right now. Um, and and we just is, walked into a room that has my mouth jaw this, dropped. This is an Ingersoll Rand um, air compressor. And so this massive air compressor, I mean, we're talking 30 feet by 20 feet, roughly. This thing's huge. It's massive, huge, huge air compressor. Puts out the same amount of PSI as a 30-gallon air compressor that you can buy from Home Depot today. No. Yes. This is disappointing. It's not, because the volume volume is where it matters. So this thing can run a hoist. It can run 30 rock drills at the same time, never turn off. If you try to run... But it only runs at 125 PSI is what you're saying. It it doesn't... Yeah, it's very low PSI, but they didn't... Massive value. But yeah, large, large volumes of air. And that's what they needed to run those drills was that volume. Right. Um, Not necessarily your your PSI. Wow. And so, yeah, if you look at it right here... The uh, intercooler took much of the heat of the compression out of the air coming from the low pressure side at about 30 PSI. So more air would fit in the high pressure side. Hot air takes up more space, so more cool air will fit in the cylinder. The compressor, the compressor was driven by a 20 inch wide flat leather belt. 20 inch wide flat which, leather belt from 150 horsepower 
587 RPM electric motor. The belt was kept tight by the idler puller, pulley, but was still liable to slip a little, sometimes a lot, making the drive less efficient. Eventually, the belt would have to be replaced as it wore out. The idler pulley also lets the belt wrap around more of the small motor pulley to increase the grab to the drive belt. Uh, the large flywheel served to store energy as the pistons pulsated back and forth going from a vacuum to over 100 PSI pressure twice each revolution. It also was a speed reduction device running the compressor at 140 RPM. Before production stopped in 1927, thousands of these machines were sold worldwide and some of them are still in use. There are at least 10 machines of this design within 50 miles of Butte today, although none are operating. Wow. And this, this compressor and motor were donated by the Antonoli family of Butte and Phillipsburg. The belt is courtesy of Lloyd Harkins of Silver Star, Montana. There you go. The guy we were just talking <laughs> yeah. about with the big pulleys. And you can see this is a leather belt. Where in the world do you find a cow that long? So um, if you look at it, you can actually see where they did um, <laughs> sew to so, their work. Yeah. And then if you look too, you can see it's actually two pieces of leather glued together. Wow. Um, there are some stories, and there is dispute to this, that this is made out of buffalo leather. I tend to lean towards not for a number of reasons. The hardness of it, um, buffalo leather is typically softer. It's, it's okay. stronger, but it typically gets softer with age. Um, and this, if you feel, is nice and hard. Right. Um, but at the time that these would have been made, there were only about 1,000 buffalo left in the United States. And so it's very unlikely that they would have allowed the buffalo to be And harvested. how long would these belts last? Uh, I can't imagine for more than a, a couple of years, if that. If that. If that. But uh, we're talking about a belt constantly. that runs around, it runs around one pulley that's eight foot in circumference, at least eight foot. Oh, yeah. And then it runs through an idler that is two so this, foot in circumference, and then around another uh, drive for the compressor. It's got to be two foot around 40 feet. It's got to be. About 40 feet. It's so insane. It'd be probably, I, I and imagine. And 20 inches wide. And 20 inches wide. So you're probably using... 10 cows just for one belt or more. Boy, I'll bet when they took the belts off of these that the miners all made belts out of it. It, it made belts so. for, the yeah, whole, it probably, for the whole village. And yeah. when they got through with that, kids got their butts whooped when they come home <laughs> and they'd been bad during the day. Yeah. I'm just throwing a wild guess out I there. I wouldn't but. be surprised. <laughs> well, and that's something the miners were definitely known for is, is they definitely pocketed things that could be useful at home that the company didn't really... They do like to say, like, 90% of Butte's plumbing, the pipes came from the mines. <laughs> oh, that wouldn't <laughs> and surprise me. just small me. pieces that, the guy, the, you know, scrap pipes. The company didn't really care because it was scrap, and those guys would take it home. And so you just have large areas of just small, tiny pieces of pipe soldered together. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> That's crazy. <clears throat> that is absolutely crazy. So... We about through here? Or? Uh, yeah, I just—it's up to you. I mean, I could. No, keep, I, I could go all the on day. Keep going. I just wanted to make sure we weren't running too close to your tour starting. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I guess we're still a little bit off from that, but this has been <laughs> so totally fascinating. Like I said, I've been through here several times, but you've added so much more to my story. Well, I'm glad to hear it. I—I I, I can talk probably too much about this stuff. Um, 
But then, you know, so out here we have a few more things like this. Behind the retirees club board is the actual tag in, tag out board from the mine. Um, but the retirees club board you see there um, is a club that got together after the mines closed. Um, guys that worked for Anaconda and Arco who bought out Anaconda. Okay. Um, and so this is all of the guys who have passed away that were members of the club. Okay. Um, and there's still about nine guys left. Um, and once they've moved on, we're going to be adding their names to it. They've asked us to do that. Um, but I like to stop pointing out because my great grandfather is on one of my great grandfathers is on that uh, plaque there. Um, wow. he, he drove trucks up at the Berkeley pit towards the end of his career. Um, he worked in the mines here. Okay, now um, you've got a check-in and check-out board on the back. Yeah, and so that's... So they knew exactly who was in that mine yes, all the time. They they knew, and so you had your tags. Every miner had a tag that had a number on it. That number was exclusive to you, um, and it was always going to be exclusive to you. They didn't reuse the numbers. Okay. Um, and so that was one way that they were able to track who was who was down there. The other one is every, every shift, um, before time cards and all that stuff, they had what's called the timekeeper. And that was the guy who stood with a book and he stood right next to the shaft and as you loaded into the cage he wrote down your name and what time you went down and he knew the names and faces of every guy working on that shift uh, and if you have a much if you had to say a bigger mine with like a larger crew you may have multiple timekeepers um, but if you had a smaller crew with 40 guys that guy knew the name and face of everybody who was working in that mine especially on that shift um, the one thing they couldn't tell you is where you were in the mine right uh, at that time they didn't have the ability to track that especially because you could go down starting i'm going down to the 600 foot level you may not spend you're not going to spend your whole shift potentially on the 600 foot level so you could be moving up and down the mine throughout the day or throughout your shift working on different stuff and so they couldn't track that specifically but this was a way for them to be able to track who was in the mine at what time um, which was important because once everybody came out if a tag didn't come off the board that meant okay hey that guy might we need be, to go that guy him. could be stuck underground maybe he got hurt um, of course if they looked in the mines and didn't find you, they knew where to find you. Um, they were going to go look at the bars because um, you probably were out throwing them back with your buddies and you just forgot to move your tag, which was a fireable offense. Wow. Um, you would get fired. I can imagine, though. you got to yeah. keep track of that stuff. Yeah, uh, well, because when they have to go look for you, they cannot... They might have to shut operations down to look for you, and that's money gone. Oh, yeah. That they're not getting back. Uh, and, you know, it may not seem like a lot for losing a couple thousand dollars, but in, back then, a thousand dollars is oh, yeah. tens of thousands today. So, no doubt. Um, definitely important for them to make sure they were tagging in and tagging out. Okay, um, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, safety regulations, no safety regulations, OSHA, the Mine Safety Board. Uh, how did all of that stuff kind of come about? Because I know in 1860, they, they, it probably mattered whether somebody died in the mine, but it was just a casualty, I would assume, versus uh, the 1930s, somebody dying in the mine and becoming a, a fence of some sort or yeah, another, compensation um, to the family. So I know that they did... Um, in the early 1900s, can we step back inside? Oh, I'm yeah. afraid that the wind's gonna affect our microphones. Um, well, instead of going in here, let's step up into St. Helena's. And I only okay. because they're doing the tour yeah. in there. Yeah, no, that'd be great. Um, uh, sometimes the wind really affects my mics. So. Okay, yeah, I, I wouldn't. I'm not surprised. Um, yeah, um, 
I don't know a whole, whole ton about MSHAW and its regulations and how it got started. Um, but MSHAW is the mine safety uh, organ. It's the equivalent of OSHA. Okay. For mining. Um, and yeah. Is, and now, are they controlled by OSHA also, or is it all... I think that they're an independent organization. That's kind of what I was under the impression of, but there again, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I have to admit this one's a little outside of my expertise, um, but... I imagine it arose um, from just basically mine safety issues because guys were getting hurt. And granted, um, the companies had incentive to, you know, keep guys alive and, and, and safe because it's a lot less expensive to pay a guy who knows what he's doing than to have to bring in new people train them right and pay them too on top of now the veteran guy who's going to teach them and so um but you were working with a lot of i won't say primitive equipment because it was really advanced in the day but when you're working with open cables and open cars and open pulleys and no guards and that type of stuff injuries are just bound to happen I mean, yeah i mean it's just like the farmers back in the 30s probably had less fingers than the farmers now probably yeah and so to my knowledge, um, the earliest type of like injury insurance that you'd find in the mines came after the Granite Mountain fire, um, okay. when they started implementing um, essentially they would pay for funeral costs. So it wasn't really even insurance; it was just enough to pay for funeral costs, and there were stipulations to that um, that uh, if you, um, if I remember correctly, if you didn't use all of the money to pay for the funeral or or if you spent too much money so you could get essentially a life insurance payout um which was four thousand okay. dollars um and that was either spread out over the course of you'd get a portion of it every week or you could get it as a lump sum but in order to get it as a lump sum you couldn't spend more than 75 dollars on the funeral and at that time, when that was the case, most funerals averaged about 100 to 125 dollars. So they literally made it so that if you, basically, if you tried to have an actual funeral, you wouldn't get the money. Uh, and their intention was, is if you were paying it out over time, they paid out only a ten dollars a week. Right. So it would take significant amount of time to pay out that full four thousand. Most likely, you're not going to end up ever paying out that full four thousand to the person to, to the relative who survived because they're probably not gonna live long enough to actually claim all $4,000. And so they, they had ways around actually paying out that money. Not um, like, an, it's not like an insurance company. And it's not, it. no, it was, kind of, it was an agreement. <laughs> yeah. It was an agreement, it was basically the company agreed to do it um, because they were trying to, to take some of the heat off themselves for, right. for the fires happening. Um, so. It wasn't even like a standard thing at that time to do it. It was more of a, they were taking some heat from the public about the fires. And so they did that to kind of cover themselves a little bit. And it wasn't adequate to, to, to pay. But it looked good on paper. But it looked good on paper. Or, um, or in the press. In the press, yeah. And the press, of course, at that time was owned by the mine companies. So they, for the most part. Not um, so unlike today. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not trying to get political, but no, no, you're not. You're not wrong. Um, and that's. I mean, Clark had his newspapers, and Daly had his newspapers, and they were major rivals. And 
So it was the same, and then even after they were gone, it was the same thing. You know, you had the papers that sided with the miners, and you had papers that sided with the companies. Um, and so everything was dominated by politics of what we would call today. I mean, it was all right. the, the guys running amalgamated, and by default, Anaconda were all you know the same people who were monopolizing oil and the railroads and all that stuff. So they they knew the games to play. Um, so to speak, to keep themselves in the money and make sure their workers only got enough to make them happy. Sounds, yeah, that's the way it works. Still the way it works. Still the way it works. Same, same for the uni- unions and all that stuff is very much the same. Now, same. when did the unions come into play? And was there a big union uh, disagreements or, or resistance to the unions here? So in, in, in the beginning, no. Um, in fact, from what I've read and seen daily Clark and Heinze all were pretty friendly with the unions in the beginning um, and Butte was actually known as the Gibraltar of unionism okay. um, because unionism as a whole in the United States really kind of got its solid start here in Butte oh really um, and like the major organizations because of what Butte was at that time, being as important of a city as it was in the mining industry, um, the miners union got started, and that's actually why the Butte miners were some of the best paid industrial workers in the country, is that they formed a union and they made an agreement with the companies, you have to pay us $3.50 a day um, for our work, or you could be a contract miner and get paid by the amount of tonnage you brought out of the mine, which actually ended up, for the most part, being a more profitable version. Um, but it wasn't a guarantee because if you didn't bring anything good out, you weren't going to get paid as well. Right. Um, but $3.50 a day in, in the 1890s uh, and 1880s was the equivalent of making about $110 a day today. Right. Um, and you were making uh, about $1,000 a month, um, which, or, yeah, $1,000 a month, which, no, that's not right. It'd be three thousand, three thousand dollars a month, um, which is, I mean, a pretty decent job in most places today. Um, And back then was a very high-paying job um, to get that much money. Um, Now, granted, at that time it was the third most hazardous job you could have in the United States. So working in the mines was not the safest. But today, if you work in a mine, the miners, the, the, I think it doesn't even make the top twenty-five list. Of most oh, really? hazardous jobs, yeah. Well, mining, yeah I, I, mining is very much a safer industry today than it, than it used to be, um, and a lot of that was driven by the guys working in the industry themselves. Um, that a perfect example of that is silicosis or miners' consumption, which right. is from the dust in the mines. Miners figured out very quickly how to circumvent that issue by adding water to the drills, creating drills that could pump water through them, spraying the walls, and they almost basically eliminated that danger for themselves. Um, okay. And not because at that time, Emshaw hadn't come out yet, so it wasn't necessarily you know because of an organization say, hey, this is dangerous. It was the guys who actually worked in the mines who knew it was dangerous and were like, hey, we need to do something about this and change something. And so they did. That's cool. That's kind of what needs to happen. It needs to come from the bottom up. It does. And admittedly, there are some issues in the East right now with the coal mines and silicosis um, because they're starting to get into the granite over there instead of just the coal beds. And, and the granite is where that silicosis becomes an issue. And there's some problems with getting the recognition that silicosis is the, 
is the is coming into play and not just the black lung and coal dust, which is a, is a, though very similar disease, actually different, and how it affects the body is different. Wow, that is yeah. It's so it's still evolving. Yeah, it's still well, and, and everything I guess always does. Oh yeah, there's there's things going through, and and one thing about the unions because I think it kind of got a little off track was in 1914 the miners' union here in Butte ended, um, and because at that time the union bosses were pretty much in the pocket of the company of Anaconda and, and amalgamated. Okay, and so the miners said enough, and they blew up the miners' union hall. <laughs> uh, as a kind of a message to the bosses, right. like, hey, man, you're not going to play this game anymore. Only the union dissolved, and then they couldn't get another union formed that the company didn't just shut down by breaking it up. Okay. Uh, and so even after the Granite Mountain fire, they did try to reform the miners' union, but the company broke it up. And it wouldn't be until the 30s when FDR passed the New Deal and there was federal protection for unions right. that the miners' unions would come, the miners would have a union again in Butte. So the carpenters, stuff like tat, Teamsters, they all had their unions still in Butte. But the miners, for almost, for about 15, 16 years, did not have any kind of union here in Butte to, to support them. And so some of the worst, that was probably one of the worst periods for somebody to work in the mines because you didn't have guaranteed wages. They were still using the rustling card at that time. Um, the rustling card was essentially a little card you got when you got hired on, uh-huh. and you had to turn it in to the company when you went to work for them. And then if they let you go, they'd give it back, and that allowed you to get another job as a miner. Well, the company used it as a way to blacklist guys unofficially because if you didn't get your rustling card back, you couldn't get work in another mine. So wow. if you did something that made anybody upset in the chain... You, and you lost your wrestling card, you weren't, basically, you weren't getting a job working in the mines. In the mine. Anywhere. Anywhere. Wow. Uh, and that's because even though Anaconda technically didn't own every single mine, most of the guys who did own those mines were tied into the company of Anaconda in some way. Uh, and so even if Anaconda didn't have direct control, they had indirect control of every mine here in Butte after probably 1895. That whole period of time really intrigues me with with the unions and the work reforms and mm-hmm. some of that kind of stuff that were that were coming about. It seems like it was such a necessary thing at that point in time, and yet it was resisted so there, vehemently. Oh yeah, and so it's really interesting too because in 1911 there was a fire in New York City. It was in it was in a shirtwaist uh, coat factory, uh-huh. um, and it was a huge fire, like somewhere upwards of. 150 employees died. It was a horrible tragedy, and it was mostly young immigrant women that were working in there, so it was, it was a, this huge thing, and it actually ended up getting a law passed in Congress for fire safety regulations for those industries. Right. So it was this huge win for like the textile industries, but then it didn't really affect other industries. So then this happened in 1911, and then in 1917 we had the Granite Mountain Speculator Mine Fires here in Butte in our mines. 160 some, 168 guys got killed in a horrible fire that really could have been prevented if fire safety regulations had been enforced in the mining industry the way they were now being enforced in the textile industry. Right. So that's where you see, even with the unions being supportive of some industries, you know, the industries were still being individually 
taken care of rather than having uh, a uniform like, hey, we all should have good fire safety regulations. We should all work as a team to make sure we're all protected. The textile industry got what they needed, but it really didn't affect anybody else. And so even though you had a national law get pa passed because of that fire, it had no effect on the rest places, of the yeah, places like Butte where, you know, that wouldn't be, there was another fire that happened in, I think, 1914 um, that wasn't nearly as severe as the Granite Mountain fire, but was still bad enough. And again, probably could have been prevented had the regulations that were now being enforced in factories be regulated and enforced in the mines. Um, so the unions, as much as they were really good, they weren't really good about fighting for anybody outside of their specific realm. And that tends to be the case even today. Right. Um, the unions will pair up and team up if they're in a same, similar industry with each other. But if it's something that they need to focus on for them, they focus on them and they don't really tend to care about what happens to the other guys. This has been absolutely fascinating. You've done such a fantastic job of explaining so many things. Uh, this museum is a fantastic museum, and anybody driving down Interstate 90, if you don't make the turn into Butte, drive up Montana Avenue, look at the architecture, pull on into this museum, you're missing out on, on a very nice display and, and very nice museum. Uh, Again, you have a website that is miningmuseum.org, and um, we also have our Facebook page, which you can find under World Museum of Mining, um, where we put out information for upcoming events, okay. um, stuff like that. Um, just a quick note on things coming to the museum. We are beginning the work on a military exhibit um, that's going to showcase the service members themselves. Um, so we want to showcase the guys and the men and women from Butte and Greater Montana that served in the United States Armed Forces. Um, we're looking for donations and help with that exhibit. Any, anything helps, whether it's uniforms, um, if you wanna help build the exhibit, you wanna help donate money, stuff like that. We also have our Mining Heritage Center we're uh, attempting to build, which we walked by our new pavilion. Um, is that where all the, the wall was kind of around? And so, well, right, right here that we, when we came to the we, church. We, we walked past something, and I was going to ask you about it and forgot. There's this big new metal building right here. Oh, okay. Um, and so this is our pavilion, which uh, we just finished. Um, this is the first step in our Mining Heritage Center, which will also include an education center and a new archival building um, with a new gift shop area. And... Um, that we're looking to raise about $10 million to help us get all that built. Um, and the, uh, what the, I was, what I was looking at was this, uh, brick. It looked so like it was a memorial. It's our miners memorial. Miners memorial. And it's all the minor, all the, the people who were killed in either the mines or the railroads or the different shops, uh, that supported the mining industry around Butte. Okay. Um, so there's about 2,500 names on that wall. On those now, you walls. said mining was the third most dangerous industry. Yep. Timber, I think, was Tim right up there at number one or two. Lumber has been number one, to my knowledge, for about 150 years. And so you had a lot of timber going on here. You had a lot of mining going on here. And I don't know what's the number two. But there had to have been a lot of a lot of occupational deaths in this area yep. so as, like, a, as a common deal. Yep. So and out of... We say, we, so we started in 1864. The last mine, um, other than the Continental Pit that currently operates, shut down in 1982. So that's about 100 and, 
uh, 18 years, if I'm doing my math right. correct. And out of 118 years, we had 2,500 guys 2500. Um, that were killed in actual accidents. Um, that doesn't include that number does not include guys who died from silicosis. Wow. Um, so if you add that in, we're probably talking upwards of 5,000 or more. That's um, just unbelievable. And so yeah, it's a it's a it's a good wall. It's a good memorial to have. Um, uh, it may some people argue it's not enough, but um, it's what we could do. What, what, to, yeah, I was gonna say. What what else do you do? Uh, well, so. <laughs> I have some thoughts about that, but we'll we'll, we'll save that for another day. <laughs> um, but the military exhibit actually is gonna be right here, um, and that's one of the things we're we're we've got coming. Like I said, coming to the museum. Um, we've got events coming up too um, over the course of the time, and of course we're not going anywhere. So we hope people join us and and come take the tours, uh, the underground tours, the white glove tours as we start to push them out more. Uh, and of course our 22 acres of museum for people to explore. Oh, and there's so much to see here, and it's so well done. Well, Christopher, I so much appreciate your time yeah, uh, today and, and taking it with us. And uh, as I always finish out my podcasts, I say the world is full of wonder. People need to get out and explore. This is one place and, and one whole occupation realm that uh, is so fascinating. And everybody have an absolutely wonder-filled day. All the road and go, where am I to go? Meet Johnny, where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go? 